Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The interdisciplinary team for a child with hearing loss can be expansive, but each member serves a vitally important role. Today's discussion is all about an often misunderstood but critically important member of the team, a teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing. TODHHs, hopefully that's how you pronounce the acronym. I usually say TODs, but TODHHs are able to see the child in a context that the clinicians do not have access to, and their insights can truly make all the difference in success for a child with hearing loss. Our guest today is going to help us understand that role and how to collaborate better with these professionals. Becky Hales is a first-year AUD student at James Madison University, go Dukes. She graduated from UNC Greensboro in 2009 with a degree in deaf education and served as a teacher for the deaf and hard of hearing for several years in several different school districts. As a teacher, she taught in resource settings, inclusion settings. She was itinerant, a self-contained classroom for students with multiple disabilities. She has taught students from preschool to high school using both ASL and spoken English, depending on the needs of the students. She also has a child who receives special education services, so she now has the perspective of a parent of a child with a disability as well. Becky recently started a website, InTheWrongStory.com, hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit today, where she discusses issues affecting people with disabilities from multiple perspectives in the hopes of building disability awareness, accessibility, and collaboration. Hey, Becky, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, fellow JMU student slash, you know, soon a future alum. I'm actually curious before we get started, as somebody who didn't do their undergrad there, but is doing, I mean, it's graduate school's like it's three years of on campus, it's four years total. Do you feel like you're going to finish with JMU spirit or do you feel kind of disconnected since you did your undergrad elsewhere? I think I have JMU spirit. I already yeah. have a couple of t shirts. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely. Oh. Okay, well, I'm so excited to talk with you today. This is something that personally, I've been working really hard on in my first few years as a clinician is like connecting with local TOD. Okay, first of all, hold on, clarify that for me. TODHH, I just say teacher of the deaf. What's the um, best way to do it? So I just say TOD just because it's easier when typing, yeah. I'll do TODHH, but yeah. TOD is way easier. Okay, that's what I normally say. <laughs> I just want to make sure that's okay. Okay. So in connecting with some around me in, this, in like the different school districts, but I live in a, a city, the capital city of the state. But what's crazy about it is that you go like 35 minutes outside of that. And it's still kind of the city, but it's like a whole different landscape in terms of service accessibility. And like some schools are just, they are set. They have a couple TODs. They've got an educational audio. Like they have a crazy team and they have a TC classroom. The other one, they have one kid with hearing loss and they don't know what to do with them. And they're like 15 miles away. So I'm so interested to learn more about this world because I feel like I haven't really met many TODs in my audiology experience, but it's such a related thing. So could you just kick us off with like, what is a TOD? What is a TODHH? What does their role look like in the schools? Yeah, well, that's very complicated because as you said, it's so different depending on what school district you're in. If you're in a big city, you could have a self-contained ASL class and a self-contained oral class in the preschool setting. And then maybe they go out into the mainstream as they get older, you might have multiple TODs, an educational audiologist, SLPs who are trained 
in dealing with deaf and hard of hearing children. And then, yeah, you move further out and you get fewer and fewer. It's a low incidence mm-hmm. disability. So oftentimes there's only one TOD in the district. Mm-hmm. Sometimes districts get together and kind of compile their resources and contract out with one TOD who serves multiple districts. Um, So the model has really changed a lot. Kids used to get served in schools for the deaf, and now most kids are served in public schools. And Mm -hmm. there's such a wide variety out there. And most most TODs have to be well-versed in both oral education and manual education and accessing everything because – if you're in a smaller school district, you don't get to pick which one. Mm-hmm. It's whatever is necessary for each individual child, and you're going to have a diverse group. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and I'm hoping we'll be able to talk a little bit more about like the geographical divide and how that role changes. I'm curious, okay, once you're in a school, let's say you're in a school that's like, you're the only TOD in the school, but like there's other supports in place. They might have an educational audiologist who like checks in. What would be like your personal role within the school? Like what would a day look like for you? So I spent most of my time as an itinerant teacher, which means I bounced around. I had like eight schools on my list and I would bounce around sometimes five schools in one day. But, But generally the teacher of the deaf's role is to provide accessibility. So that is accessibility to the curriculum, accessibility to social opportunities, accessibility to interactions with their teachers, gen ed teachers or other special ed teachers who don't necessarily understand deafness, including SLPs, because some SLPs have a lot of background in working with deaf and hard of hearing children and some don't. And so providing access to parents to help explain what hearing loss is and kind of supplement what the audiologist does in the office. Gotcha. So it's it's really about providing accessibility. And I think that's what TODs and really all special ed teachers are experts in is accessibility. Sure. That's such a great way to put it. And I'm glad to hear that like that role exists because so often I feel like I have to put a lot of time into an appointment and helping teach the parent all of these like advocacy skills that I don't even know the right language to use in the school. Like I don't know how to get you the best services on your IEP, but there's someone there in some schools who does like that's their role. You talked about like a self-contained, like a preschool classroom of ASL. Would a TOD be like the person up front teaching the lesson and signing at the same time? Yes. It totally depends. It's so varied. You know how audiologists can have such a wide range depending on where if you're working in a hospital or private practice or peds or mm-hmm. you know whatever and same with SLPs it's so varied and it's the same with teachers of the deaf you could have a self-contained ASL based preschool classroom where you are up in the front of the class and you are providing the majority of the instruction either using sign language yourself or using an interpreter okay but then there's also plenty of a lot of my job was just consultation and talking to gen ed teachers and teaching them about hearing loss and and some strategies to use in the classroom. Sometimes it's a push-in service where okay. a TOD might be standing in the back of the room observing and then going and helping the student during breakout groups or something. Sometimes it's resource where one period a day they come to the TOD and in, in for a small group. Okay. So, yeah, it just fully depends. And like you said, it, it really depends on geography and sure. where you're at. Yeah, let's let's jump into that then. So what do you feel like some of the barriers you saw were in that situation? Like what leads to that situation? I'm sure a big part of it is funding for the school and the need, right? Like if they only have one student, it's hard, I guess, for them to justify a whole teacher for one student. What have you seen in that process? Exactly. So what tends to happen with more rural schools is sometimes they'll try and just have an SLP provide the services if they don't have a teacher of the deaf, especially like you said, if there's only one kid, it's hard to justify an entire teacher's salary. And if you have a kid who needs an interpreter or a transliterator, okay, you're talking about two people's salaries for Mm -hmm. one student, and it's hard to justify legally if that's what the kid needs, you have to provide it. But absolutely. So sometimes what school districts will do is kind of create like a cohort among some rural school districts and either send all the kids to one school 
that's in a designated district or something, or like I said, share a TOD who contracts out with each school. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's starting to become a more common situation where there are private companies who hire teachers and then contract out with the school districts. Okay. But I worked in mostly like suburban areas and I was actually lucky in, in that I was one of two teachers of the deaf when I was in both of the situations where I was working in the school district. And that was really nice to have that support system. But in neither of those cases, did we have an educational audiologist? Sure. So we were handling the FM systems and doing the Mm in-service to explain those to the gen ed teachers. And we had to do everything. And that was a little tough, but you go an hour away there's a huge school district and they have an educational audiologist and they Mm -hmm. have multiple teachers and they have multiple classrooms set up for all modalities and languages. And yeah, yeah, it, it very much depends on where you are. And the other thing is if a school district has never had a kid with a hearing loss before, they often just don't know what services need to be provided. So it's not necessarily that they're trying to skirt around paying Mm -hmm. the money. It's just they genuinely don't know. They're like, okay, well, this kid has a communication issue, so the SLP can do everything. And most SLPs don't have the train. Mm -hmm. I've worked with fabulous SLPs, so nothing against them at all. But if you don't have the background and the training and the knowledge, it can be really tough. If you've never yeah. held a hearing aid before and you're trying to manage that and you you have never heard of Ling sounds before, that's mm-hmm. going to be hard. <laughs> I actually, I teach master's level SLP students. There's like several big ideas that I teach throughout the semester. I'm like, these are the things, if you're going to remember anything from this class, these are the things I want you to remember. And one of them is in some schools, if you're going to be in the school setting, you will maybe be the only communication disorder professional. And the school is going to look to you the first day there's a child with a hearing loss and they're not sure what to do. And you can either try to take it on yourself or take some of these things that I taught you or hear the other. We talk about TODs. We talk about educational audiologists. You can look to one of them, but it's definitely a thing. It falls on them so often. So yeah, I feel for them in that situation for sure. Yeah. I'm curious what the process was like to get to this role. So you went to UNC Greensboro. Were you studying like TOD? Were you studying special ed? And then you kind of focused on that. What does that look like? So I actually started off in community college and I took an ASL class and really liked it and then went through every ASL class that they offered. And I volunteered in a classroom, a self-contained classroom, because I was in a bigger school district and they had Mm -hmm. their own self-contained elementary school or elementary classroom for signing kids. And I volunteered in there and I was like, I absolutely love working with these kids and teaching them. And I have no desire to be an interpreter because I like talking too much. And I don't want to just be a conduit for the conversation. I want to actually be a part of the conversation. So yeah, so then I started looking into deaf ed programs. So I transferred in with the deaf ed major. Gotcha. Cool. Cool. Our former fourth year was a was an educational interpreter. So he was an interpreter in the schools and now he's just graduated to be an audiologist. So I'm really loving these different perspectives of people who were in the school system and they were like, okay, and I'm going to speak for you here. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. The problems here are so bad. I need to go be an audiologist so I can like get a little bit more into the system in some way. Is that fair? Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. (laughs) (laughs) That was his perspective too. So I I think that's really interesting. And I think it's going to lead, if there's more clinicians like you guys, which I'm sure there are, there's going to be this wave, so much more compassion, so much more understanding of IEPs and needs in schools and advocacy skills, things like that. So I think this is a really cool wave of clinicians. So yes, and and I have to say one of my classmates who graduated with me with a deaf ed degree, she just graduated with her AUD like two years ago. So there are So so there are some of us out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So actually, I want to talk a little bit more about like, how you collaborated with other professionals. But I'm just curious, in your time as a TOD, what were some of the biggest I don't want to put this in like a negative way, but like the advocacy gaps, like where did you see the most need for children with hearing loss in schools in your experience? Kids with multiple disabilities, hands down. Mm. That is really what prompted me to want to go and get my AUD because I saw these kids 
who their hearing loss was just treated like, oh, well, that's secondary to their cognitive issues or their physical issues. And we're not going to give them a hearing aid because they're just going to take it off. They're just going to bite it. And I'm like, we give 12 month olds hearing Mm -hmm. aids and they just take it off and bite it. Why can't we give just because the kid is 13 and is still going to do that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be providing them with amplification, with visual Mm -hmm. modes of communication. And I had one student who had a hearing loss and and multiple severe disabilities, and she had self-injurious behaviors. And as soon as we got her hearing aids, those stopped completely. Wow. And not that that's going to happen for every kid, but I'm like, there are so many kids out there who aren't given a chance. And hearing is just pushed to the side for them and not given the same value Mm -hmm. as whatever else they have going on, whether it's Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or whatever. And yeah, so making sure that those kids have access to communication was really a driving force for me. Yeah, that's such a great insight. I didn't realize that they were slipping through the cracks in that way. I think of like, Oh, my guess would probably be like mild hearing loss because no one really takes it seriously. But it sounds like it's a similar situation, but it's not mild hearing loss. It's that some other disability is like beating out this one. And it's like a battle for which one gets the most attention. So, exactly. <laughs> yikes. Yeah. Yeah. That's That makes a lot of sense. On that and then like with your – I was asking you sort of like what the day-to-day was – What do you feel like you had to do the most in a day? Was it like troubleshooting equipment because you guys didn't have an educational audiologist? Was it literally teaching or ASL or was it teaching teachers? What did that look like? Honestly, most of it, it was a pretty good mix between pulling kids out and doing resource and teaching teachers. There was definitely some equipment management, but for the bulk of my career as a TOD, that was when I was itinerant with eight classrooms. I had the middle and high schoolers okay, and the kids with multiple disabilities. And then the other TOD had the elementary schoolers and the preschoolers. Mm-hmm. So when kids get to middle school and high school, they don't like wearing their hearing aids. They don't <laughs> like wearing their FM system. So I, and like I said, the kids with multiple disabilities often weren't given technology. Mm-hmm. So she had more to do in the preschool mm-hmm. and elementary area. I had less to do in <laughs> where I was where I was teaching, but a lot of it had to do with showing gen ed teachers or yeah. sometimes my kids with multiple disabilities would be in a self-contained classroom for other kids with disabilities and showing even the special ed teachers how hearing loss impacts these kids. Mm. And like for example, I had one kid who Severe hearing loss, refused to wear her hearing aids. Um, Mm -hmm. They did have a sound field system in every classroom in the district, which was awesome. But the teachers are like, I'm loud enough. They don't need it. And I'm trying to talk to them about signal to noise ratio, and that's just not working. And so what I would do is I would go into the classroom and observe, and I would take a video, and you can see where this student stopped hearing. And Mm. as the teacher is walking around the class... She's starting to strain. She's starting to strain. And then she just gives up and looks down and starts reading her book. And and then showing that video to the teachers and being like, look, she can't hear you. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a really, really great idea. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like, man, with your experience... Your AUD program, I mean, you're going to kind of, you're going to breeze through a little bit. You've got some background for sure. I don't sure. know. Anatomy is kicking my butt. Oh, so. we'll, we'll push through there. You'll push through there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's really great insight though. Something I just wanted to add to all of the future audiologists listening out there and all the current ones too. The kids not wanting to wear their hearing aids in the middle school years can be avoided if you start working on it in the elementary and the preschool years. Like if you start building up that self-advocacy that early, by the time they hit middle school, they breeze. They don't even care. But I mean, kid by kid basis, not all of them are yes. that way. But it's definitely something that can be worked on early. So I feel like, yeah, it, I was always under the impression like, oh, once they hit middle school, that's all we're going to talk about. But it's like, if you talked about it before, they have a framework and they can get there. Yeah. And a lot of my middle schoolers, sometimes it was more the FM system that they didn't want. They didn't want to pass the oh microphone gosh, around. Yeah. They understood the value to their hearing aids. Most of them. Every once in a while, I would get a kid that just yeah. wasn't going to do it. I still have them. That, yeah. They hate it. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, the FM system is the big one that they don't want to be perceived as different. So they don't want to pass the microphone around. Mm -hmm. And then you also get the teachers who are like, I'm loud enough. It's fine. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That would drive me crazy. I don't know how you handled that. Lots of patience (laughs) going home and screaming into pillows (laughs) helps. (laughs) Sounds like what it needed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like you had another TOD working with you and an SLP in the school and probably a special education teacher. Who else were you collaborating with at that time or I guess in your time being a TOD, like other professionals? Yeah, we definitely had a lot of OTs and PTs that we would also work with. Again, especially because I had a lot of kids with multiple disabilities. Yeah, Um, yeah. And that was – it's really helpful – it's really helpful to work with other people who are already on a special education team, even if they don't understand deaf ed, they understand the need for accessibility and the need for communication access and, and the need for adaptations and modifications. So yeah, lots of collaboration with SLPs, lots of collaboration with other special ed teachers. It was also really important being an itinerant teacher. I wasn't always there. And so mm-hmm. having a relationship with a special ed teacher who was based in that school, who never left that school, was really helpful because then I could tell my student, okay, I need you to go talk to this teacher if your batteries die or, mm-hmm. you know, I could train this one teacher because the gen ed teachers who have a 100 kids that they're teaching, they don't sure. have time to learn how to change batteries And a special ed teacher is more willing to do that because they understand. So I built a lot of great relationships with fellow special ed teachers, even if my kids didn't have multiple disabilities, just Mm. to help utilize, to help have somebody have eyes on me or on my kids. And if they were supposed to be using the FM system, (laughs) sometimes the special ed teacher could tattle on the gen ed teachers. They're not using it. So then I have to come in and tell them that they need to use it and show all my demonstrations and Mm -hmm. do another in-service. So that was really important. Occasionally I would work with an audiologist, but honestly, we didn't, we didn't work with audiologists all that much. And that was probably partially my fault. I probably should have reached out more, but we're so busy and Mm -hmm. overwhelmed. And I did go to one of my kids appointments when he was getting ear molds for his new new hearing aids and because this was a kid with multiple disabilities and he didn't really understand what was Mm. going on and so his dad asked me to come and help explain it to him as they were doing the molds and the the audiologist kind of just ignored me didn't really know why Mm. I was there That kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. But then I've also, I did one time get to work with an educational audiologist who came from another district. And that was just a wonderful experience because she gave the in-service and I didn't have to. And that was Mm -hmm. awesome. (laughs) And so that's definitely something that I would like to do more as I enter audiology is reaching out to the teachers of the deaf and seeing how we can collaborate more because that is something that I wish I had had. Sure. Yeah, that's actually one of my biggest questions for our time together is how do you see audiologists build and SLPs too, I guess, build that. I mean, I guess the SLP might be in the school. So that's a little unfair. They've got an advantage there. But for audiologists who aren't in the school and they don't really have access to the school, how do you recommend they go about building that relationship? I have a couple of kiddos on my caseload who have been able to say, oh, my TOD teacher is like Miss Becky. And I'm like, okay, I can at least, even if they don't know her last name, I can go into the school, I can search Becky, I can find her. And then I can email her and I say, hey, I'm the audiologist, I can send you reports, like, what do you need from me? And I've been able to do that with two of like, the many, many kids that I see. And fortunately, like, they're the one for that school or whatever. First of all, what would you hope for that relationship? What would be the ideal form of that relationship? And how do you think we get there? I think the ideal relationship is that we treat each other as professionals and as experts in our field. Like I said, the one time I got to go to the audiologist's office, she just kind of ignored me and was like, mm-hmm. okay, whatever. I don't understand why you're here. And teachers are are experts in accessibility and have a lot of value to the audiologist, not just for that one particular patient, but also in terms of they know about assistive technology, sometimes mm-hmm. more so 
then the audiologist might. If you want to know which FM system works better with Macs and which one works better with PCs, teacher of the deaf probably knows that because they've had to go into all of these schools and figure that out. (laughs) And if you're not using that technology on a daily basis, you may not have the insight. Mm -hmm. So also like caption telephone, teachers of the deaf, especially as, as you get into the older grades, part of what we all special ed teachers have to do is come up with a transition plan for our students to build independent living skills and vocational skills and things like that. So we get really good at knowing what is out there in terms of alerting devices or Mm -hmm. telephone devices. And, and so I think that teachers can be a really valuable resource for audiologists that way. And then obviously there's the resources they can give for a specific patient telling you, okay, I know he's not going to tell you what's going on in class, but let me tell you what is going on in class. Yes. And okay, well, I really don't think they're hearing those high frequency sounds. They're missing all of the S's on the spelling test. Or I know one thing as my kids got older and they needed, they didn't need new ear molds as often Mm -hmm. is their tubing would get cracked and old and hard and everything. And at the time I was like, okay, this is just what it does. And and they need to go to the audiologist to get it fixed. I didn't realize that I could have prevented that if they had gone a little bit earlier. So if, if you're noticing, Hey, this kid always comes in and their tube is cracked. Can you like Mm -hmm. send the parent a reminder to come visit me (laughs) when that happens? Yeah, I put scotch tape on tubes just to keep them from feeding back because they had <laughs> cracked. And, you know, if I had known better, I could have said, okay, go to the audiologist now when I'm noticing it getting yellow and, and mm-hmm. getting hard, which now I know now that I'm in the AUD program. Yeah. But I didn't fully know that at the time. I knew plenty about sure. hearing aids, but not that specific thing. So we're yeah. we're all experts in this field. And so... I think treating each other as professionals and as experts and seeing that we all have value to contribute sure. is important. What do you feel like would have been good information to have from the audiologist? Because I'm assuming when it comes to things like an IEP, the TOD is kind of the person fighting for audiologic-esque services for the child, right? So would it be good to have data from the audiologist? Are you guys taking that data on your own? Like, What would you hope to help them through the uh, IEP process? So I think it would be helpful if an audiologist was involved, especially in the eval part of it. Mm -hmm. When we're first, granted, most of our kids are born with hearing loss. So they were identified a long time ago. So I didn't actually go Mm -hmm. through the eval process very often, but occasionally I would. And having an audiologist there to explain the hearing loss, and sometimes it's not that the TOD can't, it's that mm-hmm. the TOD isn't respected enough to, gotcha. to do so. You know, I was told by administrators, like, you're the expert in hearing loss. We totally trust you with everything. And then mm-hmm. they would go in for an eval meeting and say, oh, well, mom said that the kid has a hearing loss. So we decided to give them the HI label. I'm like, did anybody in there know how to read an audiogram? No. So why did you? <laughs> ah. Yeah. Um, I was like, a week ago, you told me that I was the expert and that you totally respected <laughs> me. And then this week, you're going behind my back and none of you have any idea how to read an audiogram. Um, sure. But I also would have found it helpful. I had a couple of kids who had ABRs. I didn't know how to read an ABR. I still, mm-hmm. I haven't gotten to electrophys yet. I still don't know how to read an ABR. And so I just got, you know, this graph with some squiggly lines on it and just mild hearing loss. And I'm like, is this bilateral? Is this sensory nerve? I don't know what any of this means. And yeah. like, I can read a regular, I can read the X's and the O's and the brackets yeah. and everything like that. I have no idea how to read an ABR. And I would call the audiologist and not get a return phone call. So uh, um, so I was just like, I guess I guess we're going with the kid has a hearing loss. And now I just have to observe and try and figure out what they're hearing and what they're not hearing. Mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think TODs definitely have a basic understanding of how to read an audiogram. Sure. But yeah, there's definitely some more in-depth stuff. You know, I didn't really understand speech scoring or, you know. Okay. 
WRS or anything yeah. like that and how that affects things. So sure. all I knew was X's and O's and <laughs> and I knew sensory neural and conductive. Yeah. So for some of that clinical knowledge, especially on the more complex tests and things that I, I feel like now that speech and noise testing is becoming more the norm, it can be really helpful if you're going to go to the IEP meeting and say, look, they tested them in background noise and they fell apart. They cannot perform. They need this microphone. I'm curious in that IEP world, what do you feel like is one of those services? I feel like probably FM systems, remote mics in general are like, you've probably got to fight hard to get that, but maybe not though. So I'm curious, like in that IEP process, what often doesn't get approved or you wish was approved more kind of a thing? FM systems, it depends on the district. The district I was in, every kid who was going the oral route, actually, honestly, most of the kids, um, but they all got FM systems. That was just that was easy peasy for us. Awesome. Um, Yeah, it it was, it was great. And then after a couple of years, every classroom in the district got a sound field system too. Cool. The problem is getting teachers to wear the microphones for Mm. both. And especially asking them to wear two is just, that part was frustrating. But honestly, the thing that we had to fight for often the most is, either an interpreter or a transliterator, or mm. uh, sometimes they're called oral language assistants or something. Getting the kid any sort of one-to-one aid is always a struggle because the district doesn't want to pay another person's salary. Yeah. And that's when all of a sudden, oh, I was no longer the expert in the field. It's okay, well, we're going to have to consult with somebody else. Oh, but they have an eight month waiting list for Mm. their consultation services. And districts want direct proof that a kid needs an interpreter or a transliterator. And if you're asking the question, they probably need it. Because if you're asking the question, then they're probably missing information. And but yeah, all of a sudden, the teacher of the deaf does not become the expert when it comes to asking for another person to join the team. That's always a big struggle. And that's really unfortunate and something that that should change. And again, that's another thing, kids with multiple disabilities. It's okay, well, what's the point in teaching them any sort of giving them language? Because, you know, their cognitive ability, I'm like, if you would give them language, their cognitive ability would be better. Their behaviors would be better. Another common one that I would put on every kid's IEP, regardless of modality or language, is preferential seating. But then I would put in parentheses explaining what preferential seating means. Because for most people, Mm. they would think preferential seating. Okay, center, middle, front row, and that's, that's good. And so what I would do is say preferential seating and then in parentheses away from noise sources. So if you have like mm. a radiator in the classroom, you don't want the kid sitting next to that or and close to the source of sound. So most of the time teachers are presenting from the front, but every once in a while you'll get a teacher who likes to project a PowerPoint and they stand in the back of the classroom and lecture from the back. So in that yeah. case, it might be better for the kid to sit sit in the back or if there is a sound field system, sit by where the speaker is. So that's one that I really think needs to be specific and needs to be in every single kid's IEP. And then the other one that I often put in IEPs and put in my own kid's IEP is tennis balls on chairs or some Mm. sort of sound dampening thing. So my son has ADHD and he has hyperacusis or sensitivity Mm -hmm. to sounds as one of the symptoms of his ADHD. So when we were going through his IEP, I was like, I really think dampening the sounds, reducing the noise in the classroom would be helpful. So I suggested that they do that they do this. And then I found out that there was a girl in his class who has uh, bilateral cochlear implants. And I said, OK, well, now I'm really pushing for this because my <laughs> kid needs it and this kid needs it. And yeah. most preschool parents, by the time you get older, they might know to fight for these sort of accommodations. Sure. But sure. I'm like preschool parents who are just getting started in this whole special ed world don't know about that. So I fought, I fought for 
acoustic treatment of my son's classroom for another kid. <laughs> so this is one of the things I was hoping you would share, like these really specific things to tell people. Because I think clinicians listening, whether it's an SLP or an audiologist or whoever, they can be like, okay, I'm going to jot this down. And the next time I have a kiddo who's starting school and there's no TOD, there's no educational audiologist, like I might have to tell the parent, hey, these are the things you need to fight for. That's some really great insight. So yeah, I'm really glad you shared that. That's good to know. Yeah. And the, those are things that people don't generally think of, but mm -hmm. but that's what a teacher of the deaf does think of all day. Yeah. That's a great point that like why that collaboration is so important because they know they're in the school. They know that that classroom is the bad one because it's right next to the open window where the reset, you know what I mean? Like they have all of that insight. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. You have really like helped me a ton already in my understanding of everything. I'm curious how you feel like is the best way for these professionals to connect because like I told you, but the two that I have been able to establish a relationship with the TOD, it was them telling me the TOD's name, me searching on the school website. And fortunately, it said like, I had to go in like the special ed department. And then they had that teacher's name. But it didn't say like teacher of the deaf, it just said like special education team. And it was like four people. And I happen to know her. So how do you feel like because it's there's so many kids, there's so many schools, like, how do you feel like is the best way to actually connect? What's our solution here? I know I'm giving I'm giving you a hard question. Well, I, I think obviously the onus should be on both parties. But I do think that the audiologist, this is kind of selfish, but I do think the audiologist should make more of the effort. And the reasoning behind that is one of the things we like to brag about our field is that it's consistently rated as one of the like least stressful mm. fields. And then consistently rated one of the most stressful jobs is being a teacher, specifically a special ed teacher. So yeah. I think audiologists just out of kindness <laughs> should kind of initiate that. And there's actually a really easy solution. If you know you have a kid who's receiving special ed services, ask the parent to bring a copy of their IEP to their next appointment. Wow, that's a great idea. That's going to have their present levels. You might not get all of that information in your case history in a short appointment period. You're sure, going to get sure. so much information from their IEP. And it'll have a list of the team members. It'll have the TOD's name on there. It'll have the mm -hmm. SLP's name on there. So that's just a great resource, both in helping you clinically and then helping you reach out and know where to go. Also, if you have, you know, you know where a kid lives, what district they're in, you can reach out to that school district and ask, who is your teacher of the deaf? You know that they're probably going to have all of your kids. So, mm -hmm. so doing it that way, obviously, like teachers can reach out too. But again, like when I was teaching, I had eight schools across mm -hmm. all grade levels and trying to talk to gen ed teachers and talk to administrators and doing all of this. Yeah. I personally would have loved if the audiologist had reached out to me and said, hey, how can I help? Is there anything you can tell me? Because again, the, the teachers can can give you a lot of insight. If, you, if you're like, the teacher may know, hey, uh, mom and dad are splitting up. So maybe they should maybe they need batteries at both houses yeah, or yeah. a charger at both houses or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And that's something you, you may figure out by the end of the appointment, but mm -hmm. it might be good to know beforehand. Another benefit that reaching out has, you know, obviously we were in it for the patients and to help them, but from a business perspective too, every teacher in that district who has a hearing problem or has a family member with a hearing problem is going to ask the teacher of the deaf for a recommendation yeah. for an audiologist. Yeah. So I'm not going to send them to the one who didn't call me back. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great insight. That's awesome. Yeah. I never considered that. One thing too, that I think is so great that I'm like, it's only come up once clinically for me so far. But when you have these families that usually the child is multiply involved. Well, actually, I shouldn't say usually. I've had a couple where they were multiply involved, but like a loss to follow up family. They haven't come back. They've been called and called. They didn't come back for like two years. And it's like, what happened in the meantime? You know where they did go? They went to school. You got to go to school or you're in big trouble. So if you had that relationship with the TOD, or if you establish it, then you can maybe get some insight into what happened in these, like, why did they not come in? You know, some of that stuff could be great insight from the TOD. 
Yes. And also in, in that case, it might be more the SLP. If they haven't actually been identified yet, if they don't have an audiogram or the parents didn't bring it in to the mm-hmm. appointment, they may not have been identified by the school. And so they may be getting speech services without realizing that they also need hearing services. But the TOD has all the connections to the SLP. Even if they don't know that kid, they can figure it out and and, yeah. hel- and help you out in that regard. Also, another way that I think we could collaborate is teachers are really good at explaining things. And I know some audiologists are great at explaining things and some struggle. And that's okay. Like we all have our strengths and our weaknesses. But if you're an audiologist who struggles to explain things to the families in a way that they understand, you're like, they they don't seem to be getting it. Having a, a teacher, the school can contract out with an audiologist to come help out. Audiologists could contract with a, a teacher to come do some group services. Family or, or, education. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that is something that a, a TOD would, I'm sure, love to do. And that goes for even if you're not in peds, if you're working with adults, one, these kids are going to grow up and eventually need an adult audiologist to go to. Yeah. So, and I feel like most private practices usually have like one pediatric case or at least a couple. Mm-hmm. And even as the kids get older into middle and high school, if their hearing loss is stabilized, they're not needing new ear molds every couple of months. If the children's hospital is an hour, hour and a half away, by the time they get to middle school, they may be ready for an adult audiologist just because they don't want to have to drive all that way anymore. Sure, sure. Yeah. That's great. And I I like that that was like specific to the whole span of it because... Do you have any insights into kind of that you had you used a term and I definitely learned it. I had a special ed minor. I remember it's like the when they're like a transition plan out of school, out of the school system because I know they can go till 21. So is there anything that you feel like if that school doesn't have a TOD, if the audiologist is the only one who's going to be able to share information with that family, if you wanted to say, "Hey, audiologists or SLPs out there, here's something you should try to get on that transition plan that I've seen it be really helpful for these kiddos to adults with hearing loss." Yeah, there's I assume it's in every state. I know it's in Virginia, but the Department of Rehabilitation Services, DRS, yeah, yeah, yeah. very crucial for helping those kids. And for some kids, it may be the transition plan is I'm going to go to college and they need yeah. very minimal support. But other kids are going to need job training and they're going to need independent living skills and everything. So, yeah, I think hooking up with DRS or it might be. I think it's D-A-R-S now, Department of Aging and Rehabilitative Services. But making a connection with them is a great idea because they can really help find some other resources. I mean, there are, mm. there are lots of resources out there. And of course, it all depends on a kid's ability level and, sure. and language level and whatnot. But DRS or D-A-R-S is going to have a lot of those resources that they can send you and kind of guide you. And we actually had in our area, a DARS counselor who was deaf, and she had all of the deaf and hard of hearing cases. So as soon as my kids were like 17, I signed them up onto her caseload and and got their families in contact with her. That's awesome. Yeah. And some places it's called like vocational rehabilitation. But yeah, I think one of the hardest parts in that process, because I've had several children become adults in this process. One of the hardest things is it they see people with a wide variety of abilities. You know, it's not just hearing loss going to vocational rehabilitation. And so oftentimes it feels like they see that the least or something because I feel like I'm having to explain things and like why this is necessary and why they can they continue needing care. It doesn't stop when they hit 18 or 21. So yeah, so that can be really tricky. But yeah, I, I appreciate that. That is really great advice that like all audiologists out there establish care with your, your state rehabilitative agency because your kiddos who are about to graduate out and insurance isn't going to pay for anything anymore. They need to have this connection. They need like get the job training. There's so many resources that they have if you just take advantage. Yes. And also connecting with your state Department of the Deaf and Hard of Hearing or Department of Health and Human Services. Um, Mm. I, I know that Virginia has a dedicated department for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. I don't know if every other state does, but but yeah, I mean, that should definitely always be part of your your collection of resources that that you're handing to people so yeah that's awesome okay so getting close ish to the end of our time here i have a couple more questions though so this one is like 
because I know personally, I didn't have a lot of, I think I'd maybe met one TOD ever. And like, I've talked on the phone with a few, but what do you feel like are some of the big misconceptions about TODs? And what should we know? Like, <laughs> how, how do we correct those misconceptions? I think probably the biggest is it just people don't know the whole scope of practice. Like I said, it's so different depending on where you are. Most people think of a TOD as working in a self-contained deaf classroom. And then once the kids are graduated from that classroom, then they're just out in the mainstream and they're doing just fine. And and no, the TOD follows that. There is a TOD who follows them. And the fact is that most TODs are itinerant at this point, which people don't always understand how itinerant works, but it's a lot of consultation because most of these kids are in the mainstream or in public schools, in general education classrooms. And so it's not always just five deaf kids sitting around a bean-shaped table and <laughs> either working on oral skills or ASL yeah, skills. All signing. And, yeah, yes. Yeah. And and that's the other thing is that TODs have to be experts in everything because again, mm. un- unless you are lucky enough to work in a self-contained class where there is one dedicated mode of communication and that's that's the one you prefer you're gonna get kids from all across the spectrum of needs so yeah i mean just having a base knowledge of everything is important and yeah most people just don't understand what TODs do <laughs> i got asked if i was the speech teacher so many times everybody thought i was sure. an slp one time I got confused with the hearing officer who deals with the kids who get suspended and <laughs> expelled. <laughs> so, yeah, mostly the, the biggest misconception is just nobody knows what we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can just picture they're like, where are your handcuffs? Yeah, exactly. Are you, are you supposed to have those? Are you <sighs> a hearing person? But I think one of the biggest misconceptions in deaf education, not necessarily about teachers, but in deaf education is the fourth grade glass ceiling literacy Mm. myth is really, it's based on statistics. It's based on data, but we hear this so many times, like deaf kids don't read past fourth grade or the average reading level for deaf kids is fourth grade or kids who go to deaf schools. It's just, it's been mutilated into a lot of different things. Current data doesn't show that that's the case. And the Mm. old data that did show that was from 20 years ago, based on kids who were 18 at the time. So people who are now 40 is yeah. <laughs> are who we're basing this off, who didn't have early intervention, who didn't have newborn hearing screenings, who didn't mm-hmm. have the technology that we have today and the resources that we have today. And we're still spreading this myth about deaf kids can't read fa- past fourth grade. And, wow. and they also didn't take into a lot of things don't take into consideration the kids with multiple disabilities and those kids exist. And I hate to say it like this, but they do bring down the average. Yeah. And so, you know, you have deaf people who have doctorates, who have multiple yeah. doctorates. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's Absolutely. fine. We, we need to get over over this misconception. <laughs> yeah, that's a great insight. And I feel like that's We're so fortunate that we have TODs who are in the school system advocating for kids in this way, who understand the potential of children with hearing loss of like any degree. And that potential is like limitless. So, and I think it starts at a young age and it really helps when the professionals are all on the same page and understand each other's roles. I think that was a great point that like, once you know what a TOD can do, which you have totally enlightened me with tonight, like once you know that, and now I know what I can kind of put on their plate and what I can help them with by taking off their plate too. So I, yeah, this has been extremely eye-opening. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, good. That was the goal. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit. So you had mentioned you have a child who has special needs. So you've kind of been in the IEP process. Is that what In the Wrong Story is about? Like, could you share a little bit more about what that is? So it actually started, in addition to being to having ADHD, it, he also has a food allergy. And so it originally started as a baking blog for his food allergy and teaching people about food science and and baking science because I'm a science nerd. That's why I'm going into audiology. That's awesome. um, But he's actually grown out of his food allergy to an extent. And so 
it just wasn't sustainable for me to keep making recipes and stuff. But I've always been super passionate about disabilities. And I was like, okay, so now I have the educator perspective. Hmm. I'm getting the healthcare perspective in my AUD program. I now have the parent perspective. And just trying to gather all those perspectives together to try and build Mm. build that collaboration. And I'm actually really excited. I have my first guest blog is going up probably tomorrow, maybe this weekend, but from another AUD student who has a hearing loss herself, and she's writing a first person perspective. So I really want to get in more people with different perspectives and bring them all together to try and understand and build that collaboration amongst all of us. That's so cool. That's so cool. I honestly, I just so appreciate your coming from the school's perspective into the audiology perspective. I think it's so, so valuable. And I think honestly, in a lot of AUD programs, there's just this big gap in terms of the educational piece. And some audiologists are going to go on to be educational audiologists in the schools. And I guess they just, they got to learn how to do an IEP on the fly because you learn some of the lingo and I know the term 504, but like in practice, what does that look like? I think that perspective of bringing people from a variety of backgrounds together is really cool. And I just, I really appreciate you sharing, like, I never considered that TOD is closely aligned with special ed, right? Like those worlds are, you're going to be either sharing an office with them or whatever, like they're very closely aligned. And so there's going to be so many children who are multiply involved. And I never really, I'm like, I'm picturing all of my like super mainstream kids in school and their TOD comes in and checks and they might do a listening check and they might say, all right, teacher, you know what you're doing? All right, you guys are good to go. And I'm forgetting that there's also the other kiddos on my caseload who they're like nonverbal with autism or, you know, like, I mean, all kinds of different things, cerebral palsy. And they also have that TOD and that person is really fighting for them in those situations, you know? So it's given me so much to like appreciate and think about of like who this person is in that student's life and like how important it is to have a relationship and a connection with them because it's going to ultimately be the make or break in their school performance, you know? I mean, I guess I shouldn't say make or break, but like it's going to help them a lot if they have somebody who's fighting for them in that capacity and who understands their hearing loss, really. Yes. And I just have to give a shout out to all the SLPs too, because they really do, especially the SLPs who work with those those kids who are saying, who are helping the TOD say, the hearing loss is important and is vital and we need to be addressing that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I love my SLP colleagues. They're the best. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I love the SLPs. I do teach them. So I have the, I have a little bit of a bias, but I do love the SLPs. Yeah. This has been such a cool conversation. I'm so glad to have talked to you, Becky. You're going to be an amazing audiologist. You're a quarter of the way there. <laughs> yep. Just finished the first year. Yeah. yeah. Congrats. How, how long ago did your semester end? Like a week ago. Oh, wow. Okay. And then yeah, we, you're fresh. we go back next week. I was going to say, I'm pretty <laughs> sure you start back pretty soon. Yeah. But yeah enjoy this time. For those of you listening, intherongstory.com, at intherongstory, anywhere else people can find you? Yeah, at intherongstory on Instagram and Facebook at the moment. I would like to eventually make a YouTube channel, but at the moment, that's just between grad school and family, and I'm mm. going to be teaching an undergrad class next year, so I yep. just don't think that's feasible at the moment, but maybe after I graduate. We'll see. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Awesome. Well, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.